Eight Conversations About Recruiting, Preparing, and Retaining STEM Teachers. Conversation 2, Secondary Science Teacher Preparation. This conversation focuses on secondary science teacher preparation and is chaired by Vanessa Klein, now of the University of Maine Extension, and features Ravit Golan-Duncan of Rutgers University, Nate McGee of the College of New Jersey, Brian Carey, Science Supervisor of Livingston Public Schools in New Jersey, and John Setledge of the University of Connecticut. This conversation focuses on the question, what should science teachers be learning in a methods course, and what other experiences can we provide to best prepare science teacher education students for their future working environments? This conversation opens with a welcome from Dr. Klein. For their future working environment. Um, so in order to situate our discussion, um, I'm just going to give some brief opening remarks focused on this important question. Uh, so when preparing future science teachers, I always try to keep one pragmatic eye on CAPE teacher preparation standards, the NSTA standards for science teacher preparation, the ASTE position statement on science teacher preparation, and whatever standards document we happen to have at the time. Um, but I'm also trying to keep one idealistic eye on improving science teacher education through innovation and research. So in other words, I teach not only for what is, but for what could be, and in some cases, what should be. And I want my pre-service science teachers to go out into the world and not only be prepared to teach for what is, but also what could be. Uh, so what should science teachers learn in a methods course? Um, there are the obvious elements that should be included in a methods course, such as nature of science, inquiry, conceptual change, discrepant events, uh, learning cycles, argumentation, socio-scientific issues, eliciting student ideas, assessment and evaluation, lesson planning, and teaching for diverse learners. Um, but my educational experiences have led me to see science education and teaching through a critical lens. And education, science education, and science itself occurs within a social and cultural context. And this has implications for teaching and learning. So I'm always cognizant of the multicultural facets of science and science education. And one of my teaching objectives is to increase student attentiveness to the sociocultural aspects of education and science. I perceive knowledge and society as constructions that are always evolving. However, these constructions have real implications in terms of marginalization and power in both a human and an ecological realm. So my methods courses reflect this stance and it influences what and how I teach. So in my mind, a science methods course would not be complete without attempting to open students' minds to a more critical way of seeing and knowing as well as ensuring that students understand that science is done by humans within a certain social, cultural, and historical context. Students must also be cognizant and appreciative of human, cultural, and social diversity and be responsive to this diversity through culturally relevant pedagogical techniques. Um, but I also believe that reflection is something um, that should be a part of every aspect 
of preparing secondary science teachers. Um, so to me, this might be the most important element to um, preparing uh, science teachers and the most important element to include in a science methods course. So I am dedicated to providing high quality and robust teacher education and what I seek to do is to develop or prepare reflective practitioners capable of providing high quality science education, effective leadership and service in science classrooms. I want my students to exit their methods course not only with new knowledge and skills, but also with the ability and desire to be lifelong learners and critical thinkers. Um, I want to guide my students in developing the ability to think critically and in becoming reflective, transformative leaders in STEM education. So what experiences should we be providing in a methods course in order to prepare effective science teachers? Um, Pre-service science teachers should experience strategies for effective science teaching and inquiry, um, including meaningful laboratory, uh, simulation activities, using contemporary technology tools, and they need to experience modeling of effective science pedagogy. Uh, Pre-service teachers should engage in substantive clinical experiences where they develop and implement their lesson plans, um, create lesson plans that are appropriate for students from diverse backgrounds, assess their success on student learning, and plan their next steps to improve their teaching. And some of that field work needs to happen within their methods course. Uh, they need to find and use credible information about safety in the science classroom. Um, my students read a lot. Uh, they write a lot. They do multiple micro-teachings <coughs> in groups and individually. <coughs> Um, they have critical discussions with peers. They create a unit plan and develop a science teaching philosophy. And throughout all of these experiences, they are reflecting, reflecting, reflecting. Um, and all of these experiences are working together to help students develop the pedagogical content knowledge to become high quality science teachers. So as we start our conversation, um, let me just remind you that we're focusing on secondary science teacher preparation and the question, what should science teachers be learning in a methods course, and what other experiences can we provide to best prepare science teacher education students? So each of our panel members are going to speak for about 10 minutes, and then we're going to have um, a conversation at the end. Uh, so first up, we have uh, Ravit Golan-Duncan from Rutgers. Hi, um, I'm getting over a cold, so I'm hoping I won't have a coughing fit right in the middle of the 10 minutes. If I can get through 10 minutes, I'll be very happy. Um, <coughs> so I work at Rutgers. I prepare biology, K-12 teachers that predominantly go and work in middle school and high school settings. Um, and I'm mostly going to talk about um, the kinds of experiences and strategies that we use in our we have a series of methods courses. I'm going to talk about the ones that come before the student teaching experiences. So I think that there are sort of three key aspects um, that our pre-service teachers uh, or understandings that they need to develop. One is a vision of what science actually is, what science inquiry actually is, and what does that look like in the classroom. So with the NGSS, uh, this is becoming even more of an issue. Uh, it's 
ambitious and difficult teaching even for in-service teachers, so it certainly is uh, a big hurdle for pre-service teachers. And by a vision of science, I mean understanding that science is a knowledge-building endeavor. Uh, it happens within a community of scientists with epistemic norms for what counts as good models, good evidence, good arguments, good explanations, how we develop them, uh, presenting and critiquing claims. Uh, it's not something that pre-service teachers pick up from courses in high school or undergraduates. And if they have not had experiences working in a science setting in a lab for a long period of time, they're unlikely to have this sort of view of science. And that's difficult uh, to obtain, and we obviously don't put them in lab settings. Um, what I try to do is have them read uh, Scientific American, Science News, particularly articles that kind of bring up the controversies and bring up alternative models and discuss qualities of evidence, qualities of arguments, to try and help them see that science is a conversation, right? That the, it's, a, it's a human creation, that these constructs, these models, these explanations are human crea creations and they're up for debate, evidence-based um, argumentation. Um, I also want to help them get a vision of what an NGSS-aligned classroom should look sound and feel like. Um, so we do that in several ways. They experience learning through inquiry themselves, uh, where I sort of model the teaching and I pick topics that um, they don't know. So even though it's biology, for example, I pick the molecular basis of cancer, which one would think most pre-service biology teachers should know, and ours have a major. Um, they're not necessarily very strong on that particular topic, and I've found that when we start creating initial models of what happens in cancer at a cellular level, they ground out. There's a whole slew of gaps in their understanding that then I can provide them with evidence. This is mostly adaptive primary literature, um, research articles, short research articles that we modify and simplify. Um, and they read and they, through iterative cycles, develop a model of cancer. We also build one through class consensus of the molecular basis of cancer. And this experience uh, has several sort of elements that I like. One, it frustrates them to an extent, and they feel that learning is hard. For a lot of these teachers, learning has actually been pretty easy. These are often <coughs> students that are good at school, right? School was good for them. They liked school. Uh, so all of a sudden, facing unknowns in, and not knowing the answer shakes the boat a little bit for them, which is a good thing, because a lot of their students are in that boat pretty much all the time. Um, the other thing is that they, they realize that they can learn from their peers. No one gave them the answer. The answer was constructed through group work and class discussions through the entire group, the community. Um, and that's also a novel insight for a lot of them. We then transition to looking at what classrooms uh, looking at some middle school classrooms. We have units that we've designed as part of a research project um, that we have middle school teachers who've enacted, middle school students who've done work, and we have work artifacts from those kids. And what I do is I have the pre-service teachers engage as students in a lesson. Now, in this case, they do know the content. It's um, things like um, cellular transport. We look at a question of how does lead, which is a toxin, get into our cells, right? If it's so bad, how is it getting in? Um, and they, again, they develop models of how is that possible. 
Then they look at a teacher discussing with her seventh graders that exact question and the, the various models that the kids came up with. And lo and behold, it's very similar kinds of models, similar kinds of ideas. Either it just sort of diffuses in or sneaks in, or there's some sort of a gate or door that lets it in, or it hitchhikes with some other substance and gets in. And the seventh graders come up with the similar kinds of ideas. Um, and they look at those models. So we have the student artifacts. So we start analyzing students' ideas. That's another core aspect, I think, of that, that we need to emphasize. I'm not even sure that I emphasize it enough. It's something that I feel like I need to do more of in our methods course, is attending to students' thinking and responding to students' thinking. We often start with student artifacts because those are sort of simpler to analyze. Um, you don't have the classroom dynamics of multiple kids' ideas on the table at the same time and other sort of goals and constraints that a teacher has in the moment-to-moment -moment decision making process that is teaching. When you look at student artifacts, you have all the time that you need to process what they're saying, try and make sense. Um, I often tell them that you know students are sensible beings. So even if what they wrote down doesn't make sense to you, you need to assume it made sense to them. So your job is to figure out in light of what kinds of understandings what they wrote makes sense. Um, that's hard work, that's a lot of fun. It's very different than the get it, don't get it kind of binary framework um, that they often bring with them initially. So we spend a lot of time doing that. Um, so that helps sort of with the developing a vision. That's sort of part one, large time in our methods courses around that. Another key aspect though is developing design capacity. So there are not a lot of materials out there for NGSS, it's not in high school. There's some things being developed. I know NSF has funded some efforts. It's slow. Um, so a lot of teachers and currently districts, um, most districts I've talked to are um, just running around developing lessons. It's this whole past summer and this summer and last summer, that's what they've been doing. Um, which is fine, except that it takes us, for example, months and months and months to develop these kinds of materials in groups of people who spend nothing but developing these materials and expecting teachers to sort of be able to do this on their own over the summer um, is it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, having said that, I do think that there are ways in which teachers can grow and learn and develop in their design capacity. So there's a lot of time devoted in the methods course to design. Uh, in order to make that a little more um, constrained and doable, we provide them with um, a framework or a set of, of templates um, that we use in a research that we've developed through a research project in which they essentially identify a phenomenon that relates to, to PE or a set of DCIs and practices they're trying to teach. Um, they develop models, alternative models for those and they develop a set of evidence, and the kids work with that. And they've seen models of this. They've seen teaching using these kinds of models. So it's, it sort of brings it down just a little bit in terms of the, the expectation. They're not designing from scratch. They're not designing something um, completely different. They have a, a sort of a template that they're working with. Um, and they actually implement this 
in classrooms, um, not in student teaching, even beforehand, and collect data of student work. So that's another emphasis, and that is the point that Vanessa mentioned with the reflection and evidence-based practice. If you had these goals in terms of what you wanted students to be able to understand, do and understand at the end, where are they? Look at the formative assessment that you gave. Look at the various tasks. We use embedded assessment in our units. What can you tell me about student thinking? And again, not in a binary sense, but in a much more nuanced kind of coding, much like the coding that we do, um, to try and get an understanding of the leverages in students' thinking. What can you build on? What are they getting? And where are some of the gaps? And so developing a vision, building design capacity, and attending to and working with students' ideas, sort of three core strands throughout the program. And I do want to end with one quick question, is that, um, that I'm hoping maybe we'll get a chance to discuss at the end. <clears throat> what do we expect beginning teachers to be able to do at the end of the preparation program, right? I think that's a question that I wrestle with a lot. What is a reasonable, competent novice, given the ambition of the NGSS? Thank you. So we have two minutes, I think, left for questions. I've been involved in helping to promote and lead, uh, especially the physics part of the teacher education preparation program at TCNJ. And I've been um, mostly, uh, most deeply involved in helping uh, plan some of the things um, that, and some of the experiences we're trying to give our, uh, our new physics teachers outside of that methods course. So I'm gonna talk mostly about that. Um, but I'll start by saying uh, just a couple things about our methods course. And first is, I think one of the um, biggest challenges being at a relatively small school, and you know certainly this is true um, at big schools too that don't have large science teacher education programs, and that is how you actually can run a successful methods course with low and variable enrollment. You know, a lot of times we have you know, maybe 10, maybe a dozen students across all three programs. So there's no way our deans are going to let us run, you know, a physics methods course, a biology methods course, and a chemistry methods course with three students in each uh, section, even though, you know, that's what we would like to do, ideally. So we've been trying to figure out the, the best way to run our methods course so that we can provide content-specific pedagogy, you know, actual practical experience in designing labs and designing instructions that our students can take with them into the field. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we've been running this science methods course, you know, with a, a mix of biology, chemistry, and physics students. It is the one course, you know, we have a lot of courses in the School of Education, but this is the one course that's part of the science um, teacher training program at the College of New Jersey that resides in the science department. It's taught by a science faculty member. It's been taught uh, in the past at TCNJ by um, a fa uh, uh, someone uh, who was a science supervisor, but it's also been taught by uh, faculty members in the physics department with a physics education research expertise, and it's worked well in both ways. Uh, but it really isn't easy uh, to um, design the, uh, the same course optimally for uh, somebody training to teach biology or chemistry or physics. 
that said, um, you know, there certainly are things in common uh, that we've worked hard to do. We really want students to come out of that course as much as they'd like us to give them all the answers and, you know, be prepared to deliver content the day they walk in the door. I think one of the messages that we hope they get is that they're going to be lifelong learners. We're trying to develop students with a philosophy of learning uh, that is reflective and that is centered on growth. They need to know that they're going to learn things every year they're in the classroom, every, every day they're in the classroom, and they need to prepare to be prepared to integrate those things into their practice. Uh, certainly, we also really uh, strive to make sure that they are completely dedicated uh, to uh, delivering a student-centered, uh, scientific inquiry-based program of instruction and to be prepared to encounter resistance to that in some schools where they may uh, first become employed. Also, of course, um, as Ravit uh, mentioned, we're working hard to incorporate uh, NGSS uh, standards and practices. And, um, you know, that, that's pretty much the state of our methods course right now. We have worked um, just over the last couple of years to try to uh, break this methods, actually make the methods course a lab-based course so that we can break, you know, even though we can't run full sections for the different content areas, we can break out um, into content-specific lab areas where students can get a little bit more content-specific practice and to bring in some science teachers from the field to help out with that. Um, of course, we have our challenges that have already been touched on uh, with respect to EdTPA, but some of you probably know that New Jersey's, uh, Ravit uh, alluded to this as well, just um, uh, passed new state regulations requiring a full-year field placement, and that affects, um, ha has dramatically affected uh, when we can offer our methods course and how we integrate it with that early field experience. Um, and that honestly reduces some of the flexibility and is going to make it a little bit harder for students to get through our program. So that's the state of our methods course and some of the things we're thinking about. Uh, like I said, what I've been most excited about are some of the other things that we're trying to do outside of the methods course, but still within the purview of the science programs at the College of New Jersey. So we've implemented a learning assistant program where our uh, students, uh, and we especially uh, encourage students that are uh, considering um, becoming teachers after their, uh, just after their first semester uh, to enroll in a program where they uh, engage in peer mentoring during introductory physics labs, for instance. And some of the, the biology department is doing that as well. We've just finished a three-week program. We're calling it the Step Up Program. I have to remind myself of my own acronym here. It's the Summer Teacher Teaching Exploration Program for Undergraduate Physicists. So we found that a lot of students uh, come into science, they know they love science, and they never actually thought about a career in teaching. So we're trying to capture them and give them an experience early on at the end of their freshman year where they could still um, enroll in that dual major, where they could still do both undergraduate science and um, trained to be secondary science teachers. So we're trying to uh, capture a few converts at the end of the, the freshman year, and we've taken them into uh, four or five different physics classrooms, let them see what a real 
uh, physics environment is like and have them perform demonstrations for uh, high school science students. And that's been really successful. It's just finished our, our first year doing that, and I think we've got a couple converts already. Um, I mentioned uh, the transformation of the methods class and uh, uh, to try to have some content-specific breakouts. We've also really emphasized research experiences for our teaching education students. I think that's one of the things uh, that we've done best. We make sure that all of our secondary education students in the physics department, and this is true in chemistry and biology as well, get a chance to do scientific research. And on the back end of that, to try to design a laboratory or an instructional module that they could take into the classroom based on you know, the, the scientific research that they conducted. And I think that's one of the most important things that we try to convey and that we try to establish our students having an identity as both a teacher and a scientist by the time we're uh, done and by the time they graduate, if they don't think of themselves in both of those ways, we feel like we haven't done our job. And we've seen that students who have experienced those research opportunities really um, you know, carry that passion into the classroom and can help convey the excitement of scientific discovery in a, in a really powerful way to their students. So I think I'll stop there. Um, I'm happy to take any questions, and um, thank you very much. Hi, I'm Katie Bateman, I'm from Penn State. Um, you touched a little bit on the challenges that these pre-service teachers are facing when they get into a school and they encounter resistance for some of these more innovative pedagogies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how you're doing that in your methods classes? Because I think that's something, and I don't know if the rest of the panel wants to maybe speak to that as well, because I think that's really, really important and something we've seen for years in the research literature as a, a challenge for pre-service and newly in-service teachers. Yeah, absolutely. It's, that's a question without a really easy answer. Um, a couple things that we're doing is, uh, first of all, to let them know that they might experience that. That's something that most of the students wouldn't think of as being a possibility. So to, first of all, not be surprised if that happens. Um, certainly, um, Doug mentioned this earlier, but certainly trying to stay in touch with our students who are, um, who are finishing. We're, been um, incorporating a new postgraduate mentoring uh, program at TCNJ that's been uh, supported by a couple of the grants we have. So helping um, those students stay connected with other recent graduates, helping them to um, feel mentored and supported outside of their uh, school environment. If they're in an environment that's not very supportive, I think is really important. The other thing uh, to let them know, of course, is that you know if conditions um, from the administration are not supportive when they first get there, I think a lot of times early teachers feel like that's going to be the case forever. Uh, but if um, you know we help them have a little bit of perspective, you know that they can be part of the change and that there will be um, you know reinforcements and new hires coming in that can share their perspective. So. The conditions they meet are not necessarily the conditions they have to endure for the long term. Okay, thank you. Um, 
so again, we will have you know time for more conversation at the end. Um, but next up, we have uh, Brian Carey, Science Supervisor at Livingston Public Schools. Morning, everybody. Um, so, so my background, um, I, I taught methods classes for seven years, um, and I also supervise uh, a science department in a public school. And so I'm going to kind of try to take a look at, at both of those angles in terms of, of how we, we get um, teacher, future teachers to uh, integrate into and then be successful in, in their, their careers. Um, because, you know, I think that's really our goal. Our goal is to help them to, to move into the workforce, to feel passionate about what they're doing, and then find success and be able to spend their careers educating our students. The challenge, the first challenge I think that we face is that when, when we look at what we're hoping for in our science teachers, it's often in direct contrast to how they were educated. And I know Ravit was kind of uh, pointing to this too, that, that they need to be put into situations where there is that discomfort. Discomfort's an important part of the learning process. And so for them to go through that, um, it, I think it opens a door for them to say, well, you know, maybe I don't have to know all of the answers, but I can help guide students to um, learning material, uh, developing investigations, um, doing research into different information. Um, so, so this process was really interesting for me. I, I took this um, um, from the approach of, as a science supervisor, we use the Danielson model in our district. So, you know, how would I look at that in terms of a, a, a new science teacher? How would I evaluate them and what, what things would I hope that they would be coming out of their methods course or their, their education program with? So the first thing obviously is a knowledge of the standards. Um, you know, we do have the NGSS. I'm a big proponent of the NGSS. Obviously, it comes with many challenges, many of which you've heard of um, from, from Nate and from Ravit. I think there's a couple things we need to think about. One is that, that we need to really look at three-dimensional learning. Um, what is that, and how does it look in a classroom? Um, and, and how do we make that transparent to our students? You know, as we move into the implementation of these standards, you know, we, we have our first year of implementation now at the 612 grade band, we move into elementary next year. Our teachers are just familiarizing themselves with the three dimensions of learning, the, the DCIs, the cross-cutting concepts, and the science and engineering practices. So the challenge then is how do we make them transparent to our students? How do we make that part of the culture of our classroom? You know, when we're talking about students being scientists, to me that means that they have to be in those roles that, that the science and engineering practices state, right, that they bring forth. We heard about modeling. That's so critical for students to be able to model something. And then also to look back at their model and revise it as they learn more information. And so how do we get our, our teachers to be comfortable with this kind of gap that, that occurs where we say to students, okay, we're going to construct an initial model. We don't have all the answers right now because that's uncomfortable for kids. All right? my, my experience is students love when you can just tell them what they need to know. Right? But, but that's not what we're looking for in terms of the, the future of, of STEM in our workforce, right? So same thing with the cross-cutting concepts. I had a really interesting conversation with um, one of my teachers during an eval conference this year, and the conversation was, you know, we've got these cross-cutting concepts. We've got these seven big ideas, and you teach biology. So if I asked your students 
to, to tell me how something that occurs at a cellular level versus the human body system versus an ecosystem, how are they related? How would they do that? Because they really should be able to if they understand those cross-cutting concepts. So how do we make them transparent to our students and how does that become part of the culture of our classroom? Um, obviously unit planning is critical. It's really challenging um, you know, with the NGSS, but I think that we have to look at you know, what gets assessed and how. Uh, what are different ways of assessing students? Um, you know, the, the idea of a storyline. Uh, we talk about in our department, you know, that, that the, think of the year as a chapter book, you know, and, and each chapter has its own plot. But at the same time, the chapters kind of relate to one another, right? So, um, you know, I, I have a, a three-year-old and a, and a four-year-old, you know, and so we read tons of chapter books. And, and the idea of that, that one chapter has to relate to things that happened before and relate to things after. And so how do we, you know, how do we you know, take that same idea and work it into our classrooms? Um, you hear about phenomena. I know uh, Doug used a, a great example of that this morning. How do we challenge them with phenomena, real world, science? How do we get them to construct explanations? Right? How do we get them to be good questioners? So when we show them something, and then we say, well, okay, but now here's what we're gonna do to answer that question. We take the student really out of the mix. So an example um, would be, you know, one of my teachers, and I developed this lesson, and, and she tried it, and uh, yeah, it had its glitches. You know, she tried it a second time. It worked much better the second time, but she, uh, she showed the students the, the video of the Tacoma Narrows bridge collapse. And, you know, she said to them, she said, you know, your, your homework tonight is gonna be to, to write an explanation for how this could possibly happen. What do you need to know? And so, you know, they went through this process of, you know, we, we use, people say pair share. We, we kind of expanded that a little. We like to, to think ink pair share. So first you think, then put something on paper, then pair up with the student, and then share it out as a group. And so, you know, the students developed all these questions, and then one of the really cool parts about it was now they had, you know, 20 plus questions up on this whiteboard. And she said to them, all right, now look at these questions. Which ones are critical in you constructing your explanation? And they eliminated about 18 of them. And the student said, all right, now I have these six. And now she had a lesson prepared behind this where she was gonna you know, demo certain things or show video clips. And so all of the things that she would have done in a normal lesson still happened, but it was reframed to the idea of getting the students engaged and getting them actively you know, involved in this learning process. Because I think that that's where the, the idea of these misconceptions really come, come about. Where students ask some questions and you can tell by the question that they ask that there's a, a misconception that they got somewhere. Who knows where? It could be something that they've seen, it could be something that they, they've heard in a previous class, whatever it might be. But when that misconception comes up, it's important that we, we take the time to address it. So, so we find that to be really important. Um, you know, uh, assessments are, are a key component at somewhere, maybe it's in the methods class, maybe it's somewhere else in, in, in the, you know, um, preparatory program. But the idea of formative versus summative and where do they happen and what do they look like and, and how often. Um, and, you, you know, the, the idea of rubrics, rubrics are everywhere now, you know. But, but what, are they, what can they be used for? How do they help provide students with feedback? How do they help students to track whether they're developing skills? Like, you know, we, we assess content really, really well. 
But d what are we doing to assess whether students are, are gaining some proficiency in those science and engineering practices? You know, is that something we should be tracking? You know, in New Jersey, we have these, these things called SGOs. I, I don't know how many people are familiar with these student growth objectives, you know? And so one of the things that we've tried to do is we've tried to take the SGOs and tie them to skills because skills will transfer from class to class. And so we, fit, we find that really important. Um, we've stopped writing lesson plans uh, on a daily basis, and we write, we write lesson plans based on however many days your lesson may take. So a lesson may be four or five days to really move through a certain chunk of information. Because what we were finding was that when, when people were writing daily lesson plans, you would see basically a cut and paste job for four or five days of what they were doing anyway. So how did we expand that um, over a longer period of time? Um, student engagement is critical. You know, I, I love what you know, Ravit was saying about the idea of you know, what does this look like and how do we design learning for the NGSS? And, and then you know, a lot of that has to do with putting um, the, the responsibility on the students to be doing more of the, the heavy lifting. And then the question comes up, but how do you differentiate between engagement and compliance? Because right, we get a lot of kids who are compliant in class. Some of our best learners are compliant, right? We say that they're the best because, you know, they do well on assessments. But are they really engaged in the scientific process? So how do we teach collaborative skills? You know, how do we, how do we help them to learn what roles are and, and how they function in different roles? Um, you know, labs and activities. I think one of the biggest challenges I've seen with teachers coming into the workforce in their first year is that, you know, sometimes they, they move into a, a department where teachers are super collaborative and they want to give new teachers everything, right? That's how my department is. You know, they, they teacher comes in and like the whole year, here it is, here's everything. And, and that's great. And it's not. Because in, in some ways they take an activity and they walk into the classroom that day and they run the activity, but they didn't do it. They didn't try it. And so, you know, th there's part of that, that, that that's a critical component is now with, with, you know, obviously resources on the internet, you can find a lesson for anything. But can you make it your own? And can you make it work for your students? <coughs> so so that's, that's a critical thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I always find really valuable, and we do this in our department, um, you know, and, and we also, um, you know, did it in, in the methods class when, when, I, when I was teaching that, was the idea of giving, giving teachers or pre-service teachers what we consider more of like a cookbook lab, right? Follow these 10 steps, you get an answer. And then saying to them, okay, make this your own, right? You, how would you use this in your classroom? How would you change this to be more inquiry-based? And what I always found was if I gave the same lesson or activity to four or five different teachers, I'd get four or five different versions of how it would, would play out. And, and that's what I always try to remind them is that, you know, people may want to be helping you by giving you things, but what you do with it has to be your own. It has to be, you know, your experience. You need to be able to say to the students, when I did this, this is some trouble I ran into. Um, so I thought that that was really important. Um, you know, questioning strategies. You know, um, what are some strategies, you know, that you can use? Do you, do you cold call students? Do you use that think, ink, share, pair? Do you use a four corner strategy where you ask them, you know, where, where do you stand on these different issues? Um, you know, wait time I think is critical, especially if we want students to really process information. You know, the initial wait time and then a secondary wait time when after the first response. How do we, how do we let things fester a little bit? 
Students get very uncomfortable with that, um, but I think it's really important. Um, you know, I, I know that, that it was mentioned to demo lessons. I think that those are critical in front of your peers. Um, the ability to try a new strategy without penalty. You know, I, I think that there's such a fear that when you get it, your first job that anything I do um, is going to be evaluated. And, and Ravina had a great point. She said, you know, when we look at first-year teachers, what do we expect from them? You know, what's a realistic expectation? And so that, that's important. Um, you know, and, and then I, I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for um, engineering. You know, so science pre-service teachers are not engineers, but we have engineering standards. So how do we help them to understand where engineering fits in their classroom? Um, and, and, and the last point I, I would say, more people now, now than ever are dealing with special education. And so, you know, that, that's a, a key component too. How do we differentiate instruction so that we can say, yeah, all students are getting all standards? You know, and, and if you ask me for what the answer to that is, I, I don't know if I have a great one, but I know it's a challenge I think we all have to face. So, so thank you very much for, for your time there, and uh, I guess if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Hi, Brian. Uh, Tovi Spiro, I work at West Windsor Plainsboro High School North <laughs> and Rutgers. <clears throat> Do you advocate or did you in any way incorporate standards-based or standards-reference grading, either with your teachers now as a supervisor or when you taught the methods class? Because you, you, know, you brought up the like science and engineering practices and tying standards to the SGO. Is that something that you see as valuable? Well, let me take it from, from two different stances. Do I see it as valuable? Yes. Do, do I find that in our, our current state of, of, of a school calendar, it's very challenging? I, re, I do. Um, and the reason why I say this is because I think that, that, that you know, when we have marking periods, you know, there are certain things that stretch beyond marking periods. Um, it's actually a big conversation. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, we're actually uh, in the process. We have a committee. Um, we're, we're looking to do away with marking periods and run just one continuous school year, um, not this coming year, but the following year. And for that reason, because I think it opens you up to be able to do things like that. Um, when you look at this idea of proficiency or mastery, that may not happen in the context of September to November. But yet, in November, we need to assign a grade. And we need to say where they're at. And you know, where we might like to say, yeah, at this point in the year, that this is a C student, but it could move up to an A. That C would show up on a report card, and obviously, as a teacher, you know how that could look to some of your parents. So, um, so I think there is, is value to that. I think it's important. I think there's also some constraints that we face um, in terms of just the logistics of that um, that, that we're actually hoping to, to do away with in, in the near future. Thank you. Um, so again, we'll have time for conversation at the end, but up next we have uh, John Setledge from the University of Connecticut. Thank you. Good morning. I'm University of Connecticut. I'm also the, one of the co-editors of the Journal of Science Education, and I run a STEM teacher preparation program at the University of Connecticut. So all of those things and all my background is kind of coming to where we are today. I want to talk about my perception about the question that Doug has posed to us. Um, 
because I feel like he set a trap for us. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And he's grinning, so I know that's true. So what I'm bringing to this is all my own background. I was a, um, a science methods professor at Cleveland State University right after I got my, my, got my um, Ph.D., taught elementary science methods. Lots of my teachers are working out in schools. I'd never taught in urban schools before, so I volunteered in the schools. So what I thought that the way I would answer this question years ago is very different from how I'd answer that question today. So years ago, I would have taught, based, taught my methods classes based on what I was an expert in. And the things I was expert in were like process skills and inquiry and questioning strategies and all those different types of things. Um, because I didn't know how to answer that question except from what I already knew. And so there's also some other people at Cleveland I want to mention. One is a chef that's named Jonathan Sawyer. He's a really well-known chef. Um, Doug's nodding. He's met him before. Um, he was on Iron Chef recently competing. And Jonathan Sawyer is basing all of his work on locally sourced ingredients in Cleveland, Ohio. So imagine Cleveland and the kind of foods they have there. He was in a one-on-one, -on -one single elimination competition with another guy. And the secret ingredient was bananas. So there aren't bananas in Cleveland, except at the grocery store. And so the, the second part of Doug's question, which I don't think we've talked about at all yet, was he asks about for their, their future working environment. And for me, when you ask about my teacher's working environment, they used to feel like bananas to me, because I didn't know anything about working environments. I knew about process skills. I knew about the learning cycle. And so over time, my experiences have changed. I've started to think more about working environments. And, and clearly, that's what we're hearing about with Brian, because he's in that working environment. So for the past eight years, I've been studying science achievement gaps in Connecticut, trying to see what's happening at the organizational level in terms of organizational leadership that, that is associated with those science achievement gaps. And what we found is there are seven different factors that we can use to predict the science achievement gaps in those, in those schools. And those include the sense of principle being dependable, collaborative work environment, families viewed as assets for learning, all those different types of things. And those are now percolating into my methods courses because that's what's influencing how I think about how do we get people ready for those work environments. I think a lot of stuff that we've been hearing about that we need to teach in the methods classes, science supervisors are doing that in their schools. So I'm worried about the stuff that science supervisors aren't teaching that I need to teach so they can be responsive to this. So here are the three things that I think are really important from science methods classes. Let me also say that um, I'm, not used, I'm used to pushing the envelope all the time so much that they've relegated me from the main campus to a regional campus at UConn. And they put me there. I'm looking out on the coast of Long Island Sound. There are sailboats that go by. There are submarines that go by. And I don't tell anybody where I am. I've got 16 students. They're all STEM majors. They're career changers. Um, they come to me, and 11 months later, I have to prepare them to have a master's degree and their certification in science or math and to get a job. And that program runs based on my enrollment. So if my students don't get jobs and don't persist in those jobs, then my job is on the line. So I have a lot of skin in this game. And so what I need to do is make sure that my students get those jobs and keep those jobs. So here are the three things I've discovered they need. One is they need to develop coachability. If they don't know how to be coached, they can't survive in schools. They can't survive in the work environment. And so if they're learning about formative assessments or something like that, they need to be coachable first before they can learn that when they go out in the schools. I had a student several years ago who took a job. This is at a previous campus. He took a job in an environmental science magnet school, one of the best schools in the state in terms of test scores. And they let him go after 30 days. And I went to the principal. I said, what the hell? He said he wasn't coachable. He wouldn't take instruction. So all the other stuff we'd done up until then was wasted because he couldn't keep the job. 
So number one is trying to develop coachability. I'm trying to figure out how to do that with pre-service teachers. Taking career changers that have been working in labs or offices and helping them be coachable in schools is quite a challenge. I don't know how to do that, but I can't keep relying on what I used to know. I have to rely on what my students need to be able to persist. The second thing is to take an assets orientation towards students, communities, and families. So we can think about it in terms of cultural responsive pedagogy or in terms of curriculum or funds of knowledge, but I have to be teaching my students how to do that in multiple settings. So we do that during, so my students are in the program right now, they have 12 weeks of summer classes, four days a week, seven hours a day. I had to switch classes weeks this week so I could be here. I'll teach them my general, my theory, learning theories class on Wednesday. But in the middle of this, we build a STEM camp week where they work with middle school kids. And everything we teach them, they have to implement in that STEM week. And one of those is giving them take-home assignments so they can try with their families and bring those back the next day. So now they're starting, my students are starting to see that what my students are bringing to the school is literally something they can build upon and not just something we talk about when we do Funds of Knowledge Day and move on to the next thing. So that's the second thing, coachability, assets orientation to student, family, and communities. And the third thing is helping them develop systems perspectives about education. I think otherwise our students think about their world is what's inside the classroom and that's all that really matters. But the students that graduate from their class hopefully will go to another STEM class the next year. So they need to think about how they're related to a larger system. They also need to think about where they came from in the years before. I don't know where my students are going to have jobs after they graduate from me. So I have to prepare them for any school in the state and even further. And some of those schools are magnet schools that have feeders from multiple districts. And they need to be able to think about these kids are part of a larger system and think about how they're coming to these schools. If they're in a magnet school in Connecticut, it's supposed to be increasing desegregation. So we need to think about that and think about the systems that promote that and systems that support that. So there are lots of other things that need to happen in the methods class. Um, I have someone who's really good who teaches the traditional science methods class, but I'm in charge of the whole program. And so 11 months I had to figure out what to help them do so that they can survive in their working environments as science and math teachers. And so these three things I mentioned seem to be really critical. Um, if the reasons I've learned about this is because I've stepped outside the campus and started to talk to principals and I'll say what's going on out there. I also tell students when I'm recruiting them to come to our program is I'm going to prepare you for your first five years of teaching. And after your first five years, come back to me, buy me a beer, buy me a coffee, and we'll talk about what you need next. And now we'll start to build that. And they keep listening to me. <laughs> and they're starting to come back. And they say, I feel like I'm kind of maxing out. I need something a little bit different. I said, you want to leave the class? They said, no, but I don't want to kind of have a bigger influence beyond my classroom. I don't know how to do that. So now I have to learn more stuff because that's... <laughs> Because that's what my students are asking for. So I'm going to the ed leadership people. I'm looking at stuff like, oh, it's the, uh, there's all kind of interesting leadership stuff out there that people are sharing with me that I need to pass along to my students. So that goes back to the, the coachability and the systems perspective and also looking at schools, communities, and families as being asset-based sorts of things. So we don't neglect the other things we've heard about, but for me, that's not enough. I think they can pick up a lot of that out in schools because I don't know where they're going to teach. We do talk about next generation science standards in the science methods class, but we talk about all the other stuff in the technology class and the learning theories class and the general methods class and their field experience and their STEM camp and their action research project in the spring and all those types of things. So just to put a slightly different spin on it, I'm thinking about how are we going to get them to persevere in these work environments because I need them to keep those jobs so it makes the program look strong. I'm not like the main campus where the more that come, the more revenue we have, the more we send them along the way. 
because I feel like I had this metaphor in my head for a while about those kind of programs. It feels like we're raising little chicks and then we're letting go onto the expressway. <laughs> and they hop out there and then they're gone. But it doesn't matter because I've got more eggs coming. And see, my program doesn't work with that kind of metaphor. We have to think about how do we build capacity because then I want to send my students out to those schools and I'll say, you need to be coachable. Go sit in Allison's class. Listen to everything she tells you. Don't be mad when she gives you feedback because that makes you more coachable. So that's just a slightly different perspective on the whole thing. Thank you. start with um, a larger conversation. Um, so again, feel free to move towards more of a conversation, discussion, stance. Obviously, you can still you know, ask questions um, for any of the panelists, and we can discuss. Thank you. Um, Rowan University, um, I can possibly link with a lot of what, you, what was being said, because we do have a learning assistant program as well as we've been involved with EdTPA for a few years now. So obviously there have been changes that are, have been happening across the board on a state level and on a nation, nationwide level. My question in particular focuses on the nature of the transition of these method courses. What do you, each of you basically, uh, this is for the whole panel, um, what do you envision as um, transitionary processes for these method classes that will embody the following three aspects, which are, I think, phenomena that are in existence but are finding more and being amplified more as we move along. First aspect is social justice, social justice issues. Um, the second is, um, I know there's a kind of a debate between method courses that are provided by general Methodists and involving all majors in that methods course and specific method courses that involve biology, chemistry, physics, so on and so forth. But then there's the question of the interdisciplinary nature of NGSS and preparing these teachers to um, um, attribute to or implement in their teaching practices towards NGSS standards. So that's the second aspect. The third aspect is the, um, um, the commensurability with the workforce um, criteria with the, I'm sorry, not the workforce, the work environment criteria. So there is, um, we tend to prepare teachers at certain expectations, but there's a, something called the reality of the classroom, the reality of the context itself, and the fact that there's, uh, has been, and it seems always will be, some discrepancies between what we teach, how we prepare them as science teachers, and what they end up doing in the, um, in the, in the schools. A uh, huge emphasis of much of their time is a lot directed towards assessment and teaching to the test. And in a lot of the elementary schools in the state, science takes a back seat because math and literacy are what's important. Those are the things that we score. So in light of these, and I go back to the um, um, metaphor that John was just using a while ago about the chicks. Truly, we are preparing chicks, <laughs> not full-grown chickens or roadrunners for that matter. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, there's such a huge challenge for us all, be it in, as practitioners, as researchers, um, whether we're teaching methods classes or we're teaching in the, in, the, in the school. So in light of all that, I mean, how do you envision the nature of the transition of the methods courses that are being um, afforded in the, um, in the higher education? Thank you very much. 
jump on it. Yeah, go for it. So um, I think it goes back to the theme of the conference, which is talking about how do we innovate and how do we do research on these types of things. So I think we need to be more innovative about how we think about the preparing students to deal with social justice issues or to think in a social justice oriented way. I think we have hunches about that. I think we each do that in our own ways, but I'm not sure we've been really methodical in looking at how that's really happening. So looking at how do we innovate those kind of experiences um, and then researching those and disseminate those to each other. Because I'm sure there are things that happen in your methods class that Ravit does in her class, but I don't do the same thing. So it'd be nice to know about those kind of things. So I think trying to capture what's happening there, but also being innovative in terms of what we're thinking about what might be possible. So do we do just more stuff in, math in methods classes or do we create new field experiences for our students? I'm a little troubled by the idea of doubling field experiences when we're still getting huge attrition. Are we going to double that and do more of the same thing? So what can we innovate in terms of that space that that time creates for us? And then trying to be more methodical so what I'm doing then gets known by others to probably not do, but also <laughs> so I can learn from what other people are doing well. Um, you know, uh, two things kind of came to mind. One is, um, you know, one semester of a methods class to me never seemed like enough. Um, and, and so, like, where else would it fit in? Um, you know, I, I remember going through undergrad and then my master's program and then, and then teaching a methods course and thinking, man, if there, were co if there was context for this, I, th I think that some of this could be so much more valuable. And so, you know, is there a way to have an initial methods course, but then also when the student is in their, their placement, to have a methods course that runs maybe one night a week on top of that. So now there, there could be some context to actually get them to, <coughs> to say, well, this is what I'm seeing in this class. So here, here's the issue, you know, and, and, and th that's when well, a lot of that, I think the social justice and, and things would really come to the forefront because they would be experiencing it. Um, so I don't know if that, that's a possibility, but I, I, I certainly think it's, it's something that would really be beneficial to you know, newer teachers. Uh, I'll jump in here and say um, that's exactly what we did with our NOICE grant, is we bought out the, um, the student teaching seminar course that was mixed in terms of not just science majors, but phys ed, social studies, and we made a science-only student teaching seminar, which was really a second methods course that was connected to what they were doing. And it was awesome. I wish I could do it all the time. It was really expensive, you know, and really low. If people are counting your enrollments, you have to hide. Um, <laughs> but but it, it did exactly what you're talking about. And, I, I, you know, the question for me is how do we, how do we create the capacity for that in, you know, non-grant funded situations? I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be passing around the microphone. Who had a question? <laughs> I have a broad question for the uh, with elementary education, teacher education. I'm Patrick Womack from UMaine, uh, and I really appreciate all of you. Uh, lots to think about. So elementary teacher education, um, traditional model is you're going to take a whole bunch of methods courses in the same semester, right? Um, and I think maybe anecdotally, science and social studies tend, in the mind of the student, tend to be <coughs> backseat. Um, we're considering some drastic, we don't know what types of changes, but really rethinking that whole kind of last year 
of study and trying to rethink, you know, what else, what other models are there to avoid science and social studies taking a back seat and avoid um, kind of bombarding students with all the methods courses at the same time? Have, have your institutions given that thought or are there other models that you're aware of? Uh, one model that we have, and um, I'm not a direct part of this program, but we have an integrative STEM dual program with elementary education. So, um, you know, it does uh, separate uh, social studies, but at least uh, some set of our elementary education uh, teachers um, are, you know, uh, in inherently through the structure of the program, um, you know, coming out with a science focus. And then, you know, can, can get a middle school endorsement as, as well as the, as the uh, elementary um, certification. So that's one thing that we are doing, at least. Well, my reaction is, uh, this isn't programmatic based, but at Cleveland State I had two colleagues teaching the literacy in the writing course, and we offered that in conjunction with science methods during the May semester in a local school. So they had field experiences while they're doing that at the same time. So actually real kids in inner city Cleveland, and that becomes highly teachable sorts of moments. Um, at University of Utah, they built a new high school out, or new elementary school out by the airport, so it has lots of low-income kids. They had an extra room, and they asked if I wanted to teach my methods classes out there. So I would teach elementary science methods, and then one of my former students would bring her kids in, and I would teach both groups at the same time. And then after my class, they'd have a reading methods class. So my students were driving for two classes one location. So I think I would suggest looking for sites where that rich kind of learning could happen and then build courses to try to attract students. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, uh, I floated an idea in my district. I can't even get it to stick in my district, so good luck if you can get it to, to work where you are. Um, but the, the idea of, you know, I always see science as, as the kind of bridge that, that brings math and ELA together. And so, you know, could, could, we, could we think about writing curriculum that doesn't separate math and ELA and science, but could we write a, a curriculum that, that tackles an overarching question that, that, that pulls in each of the three disciplines? Um, I, I think it would be a really interesting approach. Um, you know, I know that there are some people out there that have started doing some work with that, um, but, but looking at you know, both, both fiction and nonfiction texts that, that could introduce you know, either either challenges or overarching questions. I mean, you could bring in the engineering design of, of some, you know, di different children's books where there, there's a problem that exists that they have to conquer and stop at that point and have the kids kind of build, you know, a, a solution to that um, before they read on and see how, you know, the author came about with, with the conclusion of the book. Um, it, it's just a thought, but, but it's, it's something that, that I, I think could really work. Uh, Stephen Krajewski, uh, Bridgewater State University. I want to thank the panel, uh, really informative. I like the different perspectives on uh, teaching methods courses, and that's where my question comes, that everyone on the panel either taught a methods course or, or is familiar with the methods courses. Uh, remember, Nate, um, you, you know about that. I was wondering, if you had to pick one 
portion of your methods course? You'd like an activity, a discussion, an experience. What would be that something uh, that you've done in your methods courses that you're the most proud of or that your students really enjoyed? If you had to just pick one thing, like one, one day, one lesson, one uh, time at the school, uh, what would it be for, for each of you in the panel? I'd like to ask it for everyone. <laughs> so mine was an advanced methods for elementary and secondary, and my favorite was we had someone from the physics department come over, and she was going to use high technology stuff and teach them using the learning cycle. And she started the class and said, hola, and taught entirely in Spanish. And so all this stuff my students have been learning about English language learners, they got to experience it firsthand for a little while. And I've never seen so many people so close to throwing up and needing to go to the bathroom. But we kind of worked through the challenges they were feeling, and several of them said, Oh my God, during student teaching, when those kids were talking in the back of the room during my lesson, they weren't off task. They were trying to negotiate just the same way we were. So I think that kind of those uncomfortable experiences and trying to think about those sorts of things <laughs> and turn into a social justice angle as well. So that kind of, it's a little bit of a stunt, a little bit of a trick, but the way we process it was really important, I think. Yeah, I, I think mine would actually be somewhat similar to that. Um, you know, w one of the things that I really like to do was I, I brought, um, someone who I co-taught with into the class. And, and we actually taught the, the methods class using the different models of co-teaching. And so they got to see how you know, like team teaching would look versus alternative teaching or parallel teaching or things like that while we were actually covering the content that, that we would have been covering anyway. So just to break them up and, and, and give them an idea as to you know, this is how this could work and this is why you might use this strategy. Um, because you know, I, I think that one of the biggest disservices we can do to, to pre-service teachers is when they, they student teach to put them in honors and AP level courses. Because that, that's most likely not where they're gonna go. They're probably gonna go into your college prep and some of those may be you know, with a co-teacher in class support. <coughs> and so having them experience that I, I think is really important if we want them to be successful. No, actually, it was um, so, like personally co-taught with. Okay. Yeah, so so I, I co-taught chemistry um, before becoming a. Actually, when I first became a supervisor, we were teaching supervisors, so we taught a reduced load, and then had supervisory responsibilities. So so at the time, I was actually co-teaching chemistry, and it was the person that I was working with. So one of the things that we've um, done this year, and I have to admit that we've sort of just been starting out and dipping our toe in this uh, in this tub for the science methods courses um, is bringing in more of a social justice aspect and as mentioned before there are lots of ways of doing that one of the things that we've tried this year when they were designing units is to pick a phenomenon that um, has a, a strong social justice component to it that relates to the biology which becomes tricky right because you can think about the lead poisoning unit that I talked about, and I'm sure you all thought, oh my goodness, that, that is so, there's so many social justice aspects around that, except that they're not biology related per se, meaning lead 
enters the cell in exactly the same way, no matter what your social economic status is and where you live and what race you are. However, propensity um, for heart attacks, blood pressure, and diabetes, and a whole slew of other things are directly related to social economic status and race. Um, so you can actually have an investigation that looks at, say, systems thinking in biology, which is one of the core ideas, um, through that lens. And why is it that uh, individuals that live in inner cities have, um, you know, are more like are die younger, more likely to die of, of heart attacks, um, strokes, high blood pressure, and all the associated diabetes and whatnot. And what is it? What is it about the physiology here that's different? So that's where I see social justice and sort of the biology intersecting. And it is not trivial to find problems in which the intersection is so tight. Because there are a lot of problems that you can talk about layers, and they have a social just layer on them. But we want to define things in which they intersect, in which to understand the social justice issue. You need to, to understand the biology. And so that's something that I feel like was interesting. I think it worked fairly well. We're going to continue with that, but um, that was fun. Um, so one idea that we've uh, implemented over the last couple of years in the methods class, which I think has worked um, well, actually comes back to something that Brian already mentioned and also maybe uh, speaks to Assam's question a little bit earlier. And I think that that is, uh, and also comes back to uh, something that uh, Ravit said about modeling, is that um, we've given our methods students um, laboratories that were um, from introductory courses in our physics department and in chemistry and were cookbook-based labs and we've asked them to redesign them. Brian already mentioned having his teachers do that. And um, we've asked our uh, faculty members to be engaged in that process too. And so if our students are you know, thinking about how to teach, uh, but the only place that they are encountering the kind of instruction that we want them to um, go forth and, and uh, you know, and, and implement in the classroom. If they're only seeing that in the methods class, that's not working well. Uh, so we're really trying to bring that inquiry-centered uh, teaching approach uh, to the full curriculum in the science programs at, at the college and give, a, give the students a chance to be invested in, you know, helping that, um, helping that progress. Megan Brackovich from Montclair State. And I work with teachers who have a lot of English language learners in their classrooms. And I was wondering if, um, you know, given the next gen science standards and how many science tasks are very linguistically demanding in terms of argumentation, and um, I know that I've heard the panel talk about how like science is a conversation, and that's that's great. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the ways in which um, you're preparing your teachers, your ideas that you have um, for preparing your teachers to really engage students in the, the discourse of science and how to teach particularly English language learners, but really all students, the language of science and how to do that. And then kind of related to that is, is EdTPA, which I think all of us are, are on, 
our minds is the academic language component and, and how do teachers recognize the academic language of science and then kind of pass that on to their students. I can, I can take a stab at that. Um, I mean, the way um, we often teach our students is, you know, to start with the kids' language. Um, and uh, this is not anything specific to uh, English language learners necessarily, but start with kids' ideas and don't worry about the language, at least not at the beginning. Just let them say however they want to say, whatever they want to say. For example, we have a unit in genetics in which kids develop call these rule models for how um, genes, which we never explain to them what they are, it's just something that they kind of know we have, how they related to traits. And they'll come up with their own nomenclature. Nobody fixes that. Um, once we've sort of established the understandings and we, we have a model that we can work with that explains phenomena, that can predict um, inheritance, can predict inheritance patterns, then we start layering in the language. Um, but really, and this, I don't, this is not news or new or in any way, shape, or form. Um, but really emphasizing that because they do tend to get hung up on um, language, especially the ones that are really good at science and come with a lot of vocabulary themselves. Um, they have a hard time realizing that you know, the, the kids are not really understanding these terms. Um, we also work on adapting primary literature and, and how do you change the language of that, change the representations, what kids might find challenging in a particular representation or uh, description um, and working with that. Um, but the point is that the, the academic language comes second to the understanding and sort of layered on that. Hi, I'm Jeff Rozelle, Knowles Science Teaching Foundation. Um, something that Nate said has prompted this question for discussion. I feel like in the like 15 years that I've been in teacher ed and teacher prep, um, I think we've had this idea that um, eventually the new teachers who are going through our teacher prep programs are going to change and that this field will look different. And when we look at like Doug's statistics, you know, a quarter of our teachers have been through our programs in the last five years and the half of our teachers have been through our programs in the last 10 years and yet I still think the teaching that we're after, the teaching we desire, which looks a little different today than it did 10 years ago, but still has many, I think, features of it the same, is still not what we see mostly. You know, that's my intuition. I think it's what Horizon reports say. I think it's what my struggle to find cooperating teachers and teacher ed programs tells me. And so um, I'm intrigued by, um, I'm intrigued by some of what John's talking about, which is trying to think about the, what preparation looks like given that school setting and I'm also intrigued by this idea that are we as a, as a discipline, are we trying to use our teacher candidates as the reform agents in a system, as I contrast that with medical internship or something like that where the medical education is about to prepare them for the state of the field and we're actually trying to prepare them for a field that doesn't, that doesn't yet exist and to be the agents of change in that. So I'm curious how you're thinking about that in regards to methods courses and, or maybe whether, like Doug described, it's almost like a, um, 
Sisyphusian task of, you know, and it's really like five years or more beyond that. I guess one thing that I would say is that, um, you know, a big part of our challenge is that contexts are just so variable. Um, you know, we are trying, you know, we're providing one set of experiences uh, in our, you know, to our teacher candidates, but they're not going to one set of, you know, they're not experiencing a common environment when they get there. So in, in some places, you know, we, we are preparing them, you know, for an ideal situation that is, you know, nearly coming to fruition and in other situations where, you know, it, it is, um, you know, it is com completely different. Um, I don't have the right answer for that, but um, I, I think it's important to recognize that that's a big part of the challenge. I'm Jessica Kronberg. I'm from the University of Rhode Island, but I actually live in New Jersey. Um, I'm a very recent graduate this May, so I am one of the chicks going out onto the freeway. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> thanks. Um, so I actually run a, respond to your question and also ask a question because I was planning on asking a question about um, how to basically changed my students' opinion of science um, because we as new teachers are supposed to go out and change our students' opinions of science because right now the general consensus is that science is hard and it's only for people who actually can achieve in science and that if you don't understand science, there's no way you can possibly go into a field with science. Um, so I think that part of that stems from the lack of communication between elementary and secondary schools because my best friend in school was an elementary and science major and I'm secondary and science, we're both bio. Um, so her biggest struggle was that there was very little science in her classroom. There was almost no time for it, which obviously disappointed her. Um, but it also made it quite clear to me that without that introductory, um, those years to introduce science to the students, it makes it quite clear that once they get to the ages where they're going to be learning science and practicing these methods, they really don't know what they're doing. And they get to this point where they're like, I can't do this, I don't wanna do it, I'm not gonna pay attention because I've had a lot of issues with students where they just, they're like, I'm not good at this, I'm not gonna do it. So I wanna know how we bridge that gap and introduce more science in elementary years. And I think that's part of the way that we prepare new teachers like me and future teachers um, to kind of change the field because we need to start from the beginning and move on up. That's so part of my statement, part of my question.
you know, um, you know I, I think that in terms of you know why why st students should should enjoy science classes. I, look, I, I'm a science nerd. You know, I mean, I, I always I, I I can never understand why students don't walk into class and be like, today's the best. You know, this is the best period of my day. You know, but um, so. I think that what we try to always just remind students is that you know when, when they're out doing whatever they do outside of school, if they have a curiosity for what's going on around them, you know, then, then they start to ask questions. And, and if they really want to understand what's going on around them um, in, in their world, science is a great way to kind of get some of those answers. Um, so, so there's there's a couple of things that that I mean I could suggest. One is you know, and, and it's it's one of those um, you know in the Danielson rubric, it's the idea of knowledge of students, right? So how do you get to know your students and what makes them tick? You know, how do you not just academically but like personally, like how do we we do some type of you know interest inventory with them, so we can say you know what I'm going to choose a a phenomenon. I'm going to choose something appropriate that's going to hit this pocket of kids. And, and for, for this lesson, everybody will be able to relate to this, but I know I'm going to target this group. Um, and, and then play off what, what they do. Um, and and it, you know, the thing is, the challenge, and, and we talk about this a lot in our department, you might be teaching four or five of the same classes, right? You may teach all biology, college prep level. If all five of those classes look identical, something's wrong. Because the makeup of those classes can't be identical, right? The kids can't be identical. So, you know, how do you go about making sure that you're meeting the needs of the kids in your class? Um, and, and so I, I think that getting to know them and, and to know what makes them tick and what their interests are and how to play off of those types of things is really critical. And the earlier in the year that you can do that, the better off I think you'll be in terms of kind of getting past that, you know, I, I'm not really interested in this, I'm not going to pay attention. Because you, you, you throw things at them. I, I mean, an example would be, you know, one, one of our teachers this past year was having trouble with a, a class of freshmen um, in, in their bi biology. Well, you know, there were, there were 21 out of 24 kids who were boys. And out of the 21, 16 of them were on the freshman football team, right? Okay, so now you've got to play to your audience, right? So when you're picking things, you've got you've to keep that in mind and pick things that are going to hit them where they're at. You know, when you're talking about, you know, energy and, and, and matter and change, can you pick an example that relates to sports and athletics? Gosh, I'd hope so, right? Now, that may not work for another class, right? You can still have the same overarching question, right, that's going to drive your unit, but, but I think that, that that knowledge of students, you know, hear, hear teachers say when they come in, you know, for a, a post-conference, tell me, tell me about, you know, your students in that class. Well, there's, you know, 21 boys, three girls. What else? Well, some of them struggle, some of them, you know, do really well. And then you start to think, okay, so, so what information are you using to make decisions about what instruction looks like in that class? And then, then you kind of, you know, that, that's a key piece of that puzzle. So, I mean, I know that was a long-winded answer, but I, I hope that, that helps a little bit. And there's the years that they spend teaching. Years. Why is it that this one small sliver of their experience is now supposed to be the thing that we blame for these years that schools have them and churn them up and spit them out? 
Um, so part of what I want to talk about is how can we begin to take the conversation about teacher education from beyond this small sliver. I mean, the small sliver is important, and we're doing a lot. Um, but I think we need to start thinking about the entire trajectory of teacher education and understanding that that induction period is especially crucial for teachers. And more needs to happen in that transition. Uh, and I think some of the things that John Setlich was talking about in terms of you know, that workplace environment. Um, you know, in my program, we incorporate coping skills. I mean, I'm in New York City. We place our students in urban public schools. So part of what we have to teach our students is coping skills. How do you cope with the diversity that you're going to encounter in the classroom? How do you cope with the real things that you're going to learn about your students that you never experienced, um, but your students are living these lives? Uh, and so um, just some thoughts from the panel. I've been around a long time. I'm at Queen's College in New York City. I've, I grew up in New Zealand, and I taught for quite a long time in Ontario, Canada. And I've been here quite a while. What I think is, uh, to answer your question, or to, to give some sort of sense of that, I think one of the important things to do in a methods class, and it doesn't matter what discipline it is, is to first get your students, probably on the very first day you meet them, to make a statement, probably written, about what their beliefs are about teaching. And then if at the end of the course you ask them the same question and you get the same answer, you haven't done a very good job. And I think if you keep that in mind as you're teaching a class, be it for a semester or a year or whatever, then you, you have a better sense of what you're trying to achieve with these students in that you aren't, trying to, you aren't turning out a group of people who are like the teachers they had because we don't want that anymore. And if you can give them the tools to become different teachers and think about teaching in a different way, then I think you've done the right job. One point to add to that is changing, shifting the salience of, ex of experiences. So it's true that on some level we're trying to sort of reprogram or inoculate, you know, whatever terms you want to use uh, during teacher ed from all the years that they've seen before. But a lot of them have had productive experiences. Mm -hmm. Ma maybe not exactly in a traditional K-12 setting, but learning. Um, and I think partly it's having them realize what are some of the critical features of those experiences that made the learning productive. Um, for example, highlighting that challenge and frustration are really important. And in fact, we value them in sports um, quite a bit, right? You have to be tough. You have to, if you get hurt, you're supposed to get up and continue what you're up to. I mean, it's hard. Um, you get physically hurt, you get mentally hurt, but you know that's what makes you great. Uh, somehow in school, that doesn't apply, right? So 
if you're smart, you're not supposed to struggle. If you're smart, everything should come easy. And if things are not coming easy to you, then that means you're not smart, which is a huge problem, right? So, so I think that helping them recognize what experience they've had in their life and what were the features of those experiences in which they learned, understanding the notion of need to know, the idea of struggle, um, those can sort of shift the lens that they're using to interpret learning and teaching um, in hopefully productive ways. So you, you don't have to reprogram. You just have to kind of bring up what did work and what is aligned with what we're trying to have them do um, and mute a little bit some of the other things. I mean, I'm not I think it is a huge issue. I mean, what you bring up, I don't know that there's a simple answer to that because until K-12 K settings change, you're not going to get people in the pipeline that have had the kinds of experience we want them to have. And maybe in 20, 30 years we will, but it's going to take a really long time. But we have changed. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we don't do anymore in schools and classrooms that we did 100 years ago. So I think it is changing. Uh, so I want to uh, thank our panelists and everyone in this room. Yes, thank you. Uh, for this wonderful conversation. And I really hope that we keep having this conversation and that things begin to happen and that we you know, come up with some nuanced answers for you know, what do we expect beginning teachers to do, what should be in a methods course, and what experiences do they need to be prepared for their working environment. So again, thank you, and uh, thank you for all uh, being here.